0: Let's uh, take a moment and let's pray together right now as we uh, begin. Father, thank you so much for your word, for the opportunity that we have to be able to open it, to examine it, to be able to see what you have for us. Lord, we realize that although your word was written centuries past, that yet it is powerful even today that you speak and that you are a God who is living, and one who is at work in people's lives, and we thank you for that because we are your people, and as we have gathered here this morning, we look back and we think about the time in which you brought us unto yourself, and so we ask now that as we look at your word and have the opportunity to uh, mine what is in there that we might be able to gather things that are of value for us as your Holy Spirit is uh, leading us into our thinking this morning. We ask that you would help me as well, just as your mouthpiece this morning, to be able to be clear in the words that I'm sharing this morning. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It is uh, good to, to be able to kind of get through the first week of school. I'm a I'm a principal most of the time um, and a dad all the time, but uh, it feels like you're the principal all the time when you're also a dad. So um, this first week of school started for me and I was just thinking back about it and thinking about how much was going on. And um, uh, so at our Christian school that that I work at, uh, God just gave us an abundance of families this year. And this past week, as I was preparing, I was thinking, I know how God works. The passage that you're reading through and meditating on, God always gives you something to really think about. And I'll tell you, I was going through this passage and I was just like, wow, okay, Lord, I knew it was coming. I didn't know what day it was coming, but when it came, I knew exactly what was going on. And it's just a great thing for me as, as one who gets the opportunity to share God's Word on a regular basis, whether it's... Um, at the Christian school, or here at church, or in and, and whatever place I'm at, that I just see how God is working through His Word in my life. And it just reminds me of God's faithfulness. And it reminds me that, you know, even the things that were written long ago, how valuable they are and how much I still have to learn. And so this morning, that's kind of what we're going to do is Uh, We're going to kind of get to a section here that where uh, most of what we've looked at so far in this book, um, you know, I think it's worth us kind of reviewing because um, we're rapidly coming to the end of the book of Colossians. And next week, we're going to finish the book of Colossians, but today we're going to be looking at Paul's final exhortations in this letter. And so as a primer for today's message it does behoove us to kind of review a couple of things from earlier messages in this book. And so, uh, first, what I would ask is that uh, we take a look at why this book was written. Um, And you may recall that we talked about this earlier, that um, there was a uh, heresy that Paul was addressing that was cropping up among the Colossians. And as Paul was... uh, trying to address this, and you go back to chapter 1, the first thing that he does, though, is that he tells them that he greatly rejoiced over the fact that the Colossians had received the gospel. And so it's, it's kind of an interesting thing that, you know, like he's excited about who they are, but at the same time, you know, these followers of Christ, there's something really important he needs to address with them. So, in chapter 1, he rejoices over the fact that the Colossians had received the gospel. However, what had happened was that someone began to lead these young believers astray. And that's because Paul had never really been there and he wasn't making regular trips over there. It tells us in Colossians that he had hoped to be able to go there and see them, but he was not able to. This person, though, who began to lead people astray probably claimed to have superior insight into, spirit, into the spiritual realm and was probably advising the Colossian Christians to begin to practice certain rites, maybe even taboos and rituals to protect them from evil spirits and deliverance from afflictions. And you might think to yourself, like, would people really fall for this kind of stuff, right? You would ask yourself that. But you have to remember that these were Gentiles who had received the gospel and so the only thing they knew was actually these kinds of things there was a lot of superstition in their beliefs and so prior to christ many of them just kind of went along with these ideas that you did these certain things and if you kind of read back in history you'd see like wow there was a lot of darkness that was there in their lives well chapter 2 verses 16 to 19 though helps us. It provides a really strong clue here about the heresy, though, that had been propagated within the church. And so, um, if you'll turn there just for a moment to chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 16 to 19, and Paul is, is addressing whatever this heresy was pretty directly right here. He says, "'Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in your questions of food and drink,' Or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And once again, he says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. And not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. So when Paul hears of the spreading influence of this teaching that is devaluing Christ and fails to appreciate the new identity of these believers in Christ, he writes this letter of warning and he gives encouragement as well. He does not minimize the threat that is presented by the, really by the evil forces or the demonic powers, but instead what he does really is he emphasizes the supremacy of Christ over all powers. Now think about that for a moment. It, it's an eloquent way of just saying, let's keep our, our, our eyes, our minds focused on what is the most important thing here, and it is Christ Jesus. And he just lifts up Christ that way over all powers, and he asserts the unity of Christians with the exalted Christ, which includes their sharing in his power and authority. Now, think about that for a moment, that they're supposed to share in Christ's authority and power, and all of that is actually very important for us because even today for us as believers, there are moments where we forget these things, right? Right? And we begin to live sort of in a way in which we feel like, I I have no authority, I have no power for the things that are happening in my life. I was speaking with someone recently who was just in a hot mess. It was just one of those days for them. And I remember as uh, I was listening to them that I thought to myself, wow, Uh, they actually said the words to me. Nothing is going my way. And I just want one thing. And I remember thinking to myself, the one thing that they wanted was like, if that's all you want, you can have that, but you're not going to be happy at all. You are still going to be the most miserable of people. And they were. And I thought to myself, as I tried to get to that place to talk about, hey, what you really need is. Let's talk about what Christ is doing in your life or what is not happening with Christ in your life. And yet, as a believer, they were like, I just don't want to talk about that right now. And I thought, what a shame. And so I just want to remind you that it's easy for us sometimes to be there in that position. I think all of us can say we've been there where we have just sort of denied the power and authority of Christ in our lives. The second thing I want to remind us of, though, also here, is that Paul also takes the opportunity here to encourage these believers to press on to maturity in Christ. And the way that he does this is that he wants them to continue in their battle against sin, and he wants them to pursue holiness in Christ. He wants them to learn to live distinctively in Christian households, and last week, you may remember as our brother Ed was, was teaching up here that the Christian household, I mean, that must have been really kind of blowing them away as Colossians, thinking like, wait a second, we're supposed to kind of have these relationships as Christians within our households. And you and I both know this today too, that even at times in our own homes, this is a great struggle, isn't it? And so there's two things that are happening here in this book. One is to address the heresy and to place Christ first, And the second one, then, is, hey, what do we look like as Christians? How do we continue to grow up in Christ, to continue to battle against sin, and to pursue the holiness of Christ in our lives? Chapter 3 states it this way, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then after that, Paul says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, a glorious ensemble, really, of godly characteristics. Just think about that. that it's, it's like a garment that you put on, That is this glorious ensemble that you have worn here. And after that, Paul addresses then, like I just mentioned, the Christian household and Christ-centered employment situations and what those look like. What should strike us most starkingly here is um, really the steepness of Paul's concern for these Christians. I think several times throughout this letter, he, he does share his heart for them, doesn't he? If you kind of think back, he's, he's kind of pouring out his heart. And, and a lot of this is because he's never been with them personally. Part of it is also that he is in chains as this letter is being written. And I don't think that Paul is really thinking to himself that like maybe someday I'll get there, fingers crossed. That's not his thinking. And so, I would say this, that his heart is really set to try to care for them. He speaks tenderly and lovingly, but with a directness of what he wants them to know and experience while being in Christ. He tries to reorient them and set them back on a course. And so, today, where we have arrived now is at Paul's final instructions for them. The proposition that... um, Well, let me just back up for a moment and say this, that Paul is now going to address prayer and how to live with outsiders. And at first glance, it might look like a last-second add-on, but I don't want you to be fooled because Paul's instructions are always vital, aren't they? So if you're kind of reading through it, it kind of looks like, oh, and one more thing that I just want to kind of toss out there, but that's not the case. There's actually, as I was reading through the text, I was like, oh, okay, he's finally getting to something that is different, that is important, that is needed in their lives. And it's the culmination of instruction here for them. And so the proposition for today is that a life with Christ requires praying and learning how to live among those outside of Christ. And we're going to kind of talk about this, about this outside of Christ, because this is the phrase that he uses. And just think about it this way. We are inside of Christ, and that's what he's been using as a term. You are in Christ, and then those who are not in Christ then are outside of Christ. So these two behaviors that Paul briefly states are the markers of maturing Christians. And to be more precise, it's not just a quick thank you, Jesus, as far as prayer goes, and you know, as far as how to act towards outsiders. It's not just like, well, I have all kinds of friends. That's not what it's about. Rather, this is about intentional behaviors in both realms. And as one grows up in Christ Jesus and is firmly rooted in Him, we need to have some instruction on these things. So, I'm going to ask you to turn to um, verse 2 now. And we're going to take a look here. It says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. This is the exhortation to prayer. However, I want you to know that this exhortation is not just to pray, because in just ten words here in this verse, three commands are given. It's like a mom. A mom can do this. Like, in ten words or less, she could probably give you like five commands, okay? I was never really good at that, but uh, my wife is pretty good at it. So, um, our kids are good listeners because of that, I think. And so, I think for us, it's important to become good listeners this morning. The three commands here that we're going to take a look at in this book kind of go back, though, to the beginning of this letter. And a lot of what we're going to see here that's at the end here is also something that was at the beginning of the book. And so Paul does this thing where he's tying things back in to where he started, and for good reason, as you'll see in just a moment. We can also see here, though, what is pretty typical in Paul's letters is that there's a depth which often comes with prayer here. And uh, what we want to do is take a look then at what our prayer life should look like as we grow in Christ. The verse began with continue steadfastly in prayer. Other translations use a phrase such as devote yourselves to prayer. And maybe you've heard that phrase before and you probably have even seen it, even in the ESV. This is another marker of growth in Christ, the idea of devoting yourself. The idea is that one is becoming dependent on Christ for all things. Being devoted to prayer is to communicate with Christ about all things. I'm going to take you back to the phrase Devote, devoted to prayer. In Acts chapter 2, when 3,000 people were being added to the believers, it says that they devoted themselves to prayer and that more people than were added to the group. This is an intentional prayer that is taking place. Acts chapter 6, the apostles, it says they devoted themselves to prayer for the ministry, and of course what happens is that they needed to have some deacons in place, and so they devoted themselves to prayer, and they were given to this completely here. And of course God answers by providing them with seven outstanding men, and the ministry continues on, and they had a lot of work to do. The church was getting started. Colossians 1.9 says this, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Paul was telling the Colossians at the very beginning that he devoted himself to praying for them. His desire was to see the growth of the Colossians' And he was trying to communicate this, in, in essence, by saying, you know, hey, Christ, I want you to know this is what I want to see happen. This is what, what I'm asking for you to do. He devoted himself to prayer for the Colossians. Now, I think it's easy for us to just kind of think for a moment about what an application might be here. Devoted prayer is not something that comes easily for us, is it? A devoted time of like, all right, let's just continue to pray for this. I don't know about you, but I have good intentions to start with most of the time. I really do. And then it seems like, you know, I forget. Oh, come back. Forget, maybe come back. And I want you to know this, okay? None of us, none of us in here probably can say that our prayer life is exactly what we want it to be. And one of the things that I love about what Paul is saying here, though, is that he's not scolding them. And I don't want you to walk away this morning feeling guilty about your prayer life. I just want you to be encouraged by the fact that this is how God works. Devote yourself to prayer for these things that you know that I need to be praying about. Communicate to Christ about them. Your life is now dependent on Him. And if you can't talk to Him about these things, who are you going to talk to about them? And this is where, for myself sometimes, I have to be reminded, of my, be reminded of the fact that I need to be devoted to Christ here in prayer, communicate with Him. The second thing, the second directive that is in this passage here, in this, these ten words, is to be alert. And what Paul is getting at is to be awake to what is really happening in the world and life keeping your eyes of faith open. Jesus told us to stay awake and be watchful in prayer. Jesus said to pray that you fall not into temptation. That's how he taught us to pray. This is what it means to be alert in prayer. The content, in other words, of our prayer really needs to ascend. Now, we teach children how to pray. And when we teach children how to pray, it is pretty simple, isn't it? And most of the time, that they, they have to be instructed about what are things to pray for. And I can remember those days with my own kids when they were very little and we were teaching them how to pray. And man, I'll tell you what, once you gave them what it was that we were praying for, they prayed for it and they were done. And off they went. And so every once in a while, I just kind of like would like to listen to how they were going to pray. And what I realize is kids just kind of repeated the same things, didn't they, most of the time. And they need instruction on how to pray, and oftentimes we do too, about, hey, wait a second, I need to become alert to what is going on, I need to be awake, I need to kind of take a look and see what is happening. I can also remember this, though, that when I was a child, we had family devotions in our home, and... Um, When my dad began to pray it was good night everyone and uh, my siblings and i would fall asleep Uh, i also remember this that we had prayer meetings at our church on wednesday nights and uh, we would get on our knees and pray it was usually for about a half hour to 40 minutes and um, as that time ended when we were in this devoted prayer there were kids all over the sanctuary that were out, completely asleep, right? Um, and there was like maybe one or two kids that are still awake, but all the kids were out. There, there are a couple people in here that grew up with me there, and they're smiling because they remember those days. You know, one of the things though, that, that I'm reminded of is even the disciples. They were supposed to be praying with Jesus at his most critical point as he was going to go to the cross. And what happened with them? They also fell asleep. And Jesus goes and he wakes them up and he says, stay alert. Pray with me. This is, this is like the most critical juncture right now in what is happening. And the Bible tells us they just couldn't stay awake. Why? Why should we stay alert? Because the hour is coming. The hour is coming. Friends, we need to be alert in prayer and praying for God's will in all of our circumstances. We, we don't know what's going to happen. But we do know this, that at some point, Jesus is coming back, right? And so the idea of being alert and being awake, you know, and knowing what's happening means you can't just bury your head in the sand and just like, I don't want to have to deal with reality. Guess what? We have some things that we really need to be praying for. Gateway Bible Church, the ministry that is happening here, there's some real relevant things that we need to be praying about. Is the gospel continuing to be proclaimed? Are people coming into this, into this uh, Sunday morning and, and are they in need of prayer? Are they in need of ministry in their lives? I hate to say this, but sometimes even for myself, I feel like, okay, if I don't know about it, then I guess I don't have to pray about it right now. Right? And then I'm not responsible for it. It's the wrong attitude. And so I remind myself, be alert, be awake. Look for these things. Listen to Paul's alertness in his prayer for the Colossians, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Here's how he prayed for the Colossians. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, For all endurance and patience with joy. Uh, If I were to ask you, can you give me a quick summary of what I just read? You'd be like, let let me go back and reread this for a moment, right? And yet, this is how Paul is praying for the Colossians because he is alert. He's watching and he's saying, oh, I know what they need. They need to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. They need to be able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And he tells them at the very beginning of the book, this is what I'm praying for for you. And of course, when he gets to the end, he reminds them, this is how you pray. Paul was alert to their condition, and he prayed for them accordingly because he knew they needed these things in the place where they lived. The third point of instruction here that he gives about prayer is to pray with thanksgiving. Colossians 1.3, he models it right here. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. In verse 12, Paul ends his prayer by saying, with giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The application for us is to abound in thanksgiving for what God has done in our lives and the lives of others. And so another way for us to be praying continuously or to be devoted to prayer is to be able to pray with thanksgiving for one another. Um, our pastor is, is sitting in the room right now, and he's back, and I know that many of us were excited to be able to see his, his uh, uh, thing on Realm that, that kind of stated that he's so happy to be able to be back and right away boom, 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 people are responding back with this, like, it's so great. You are essentially giving thanks to God our Father for the Phillips, And that's exactly what we are to be doing. And at the same time, he was giving thanks to God our Father for you. Another way in which we can be praying. Well, interestingly enough, um, Paul then gives them a request for prayer so he's telling them how to pray and then quickly he's going to turn it around and he's going to say now i have something for you to pray for and uh, he calls them to devote themselves to the following prayer request you get that so just as he t- told them you know hey i want you to be devoted steadfastly in prayer now he's going to give them something that they can latch on to and say hey all right now you pray for this And so he provides them a context so that they might remain alert and be thankful to God for Paul and his ministry. So listen to these words. He says that at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. It's a unique prayer request to have when you're in prison, isn't it? And he's saying that he did not ask, you know, in fact, one of the things is he did not ask the Colossians to pray for his release. Remember, when he and Silas were in the Philippian jail, God opened the door for them to be able to walk right out. But he's not, that's not what he's praying for here. He's already seen God do that kind of miracle. So it seems that Paul has his eyes set on something greater, and it is for an open door, for the word to have an open door. You talk about being asked to pray with alertness, and that's what he's saying. I I want to be able to see this door open for me to be able to take the word. He's praying that way with an alertness for those things. And he's asking the Colossians to also be in prayer for this. I think it might have been kind of hard for the Colossians maybe to even think about this. Like, how do you pray for Paul who is in chains and is moving ever closer to maybe his death before the emperor, right? And so I think this is something that he's trying to get them to think about, like, you know what, there are more things that God can still do in my life here. The second part of this request is to reveal the mystery of Christ. And uh, one of the things that I want you to note in this is that the mystery of Christ that he's talking about here um, is is really about um, Paul kind of seeing it the same way. Now, I was thinking about this because I grew up in a home where uh, I heard about Jesus from, you know, before I was born, came out of the womb. I was going to church, okay? And so, my parents took me to church every week. I'm born. I'm going to church every week still. And you know what? I remember just like, I always heard about Christ. It was no mystery to me in the sense of like, you know, I hear about it. And it wasn't, I was eight years old when I remember that I clearly understood it. And so from being a child, it didn't seem like the greatest of mysteries, but it, it became very real to me. But I was thinking about the Colossians and I was thinking about where these people lived and what their lives were like before that and this mystery of the gospel that way. And, I, and as I think about it, I think that, um, you know, Paul himself was kind of in the same way that these guys were, and that was that he probably thought to himself, like, what is wrong with all these Jesus people? They're all following Jesus. And he probably did not, I know he did not understand, why in the world are you guys following this Jesus guy? And so remember that we know in Paul's life that he decided, I'm going to just persecute all these people. I'm going to start killing them, and and he consented to the death of Stephen, we know that and his stoning. And so to him, it just made absolutely no sense. Complete mystery. Why would you? Seems like the dumbest thing until one day when Jesus knocks him off his high horse, right? And at that point, all of a sudden, he's hearing the voice of Jesus. The mystery of Christ was becoming unlocked before him. And sometimes I think it's kind of hard for us to understand this this mystery as far as it being a mystery if, if we've walked with Christ for a long time and have always heard the gospel. But, you know, there is nothing that can take people out of that darkness except for Christ. And as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, this world thinks of the cross as foolishness, right? When they see it, they're like, you know, and especially, I, I thought um, Bogdan, who, who preached here about a month ago, he was talking about the shame of the cross and what that looked like. And I remember that as he was sharing it, that um, it was really kind of an example for everybody to kind of realize that, like, you don't want to be like this person, or you will be hung up on a cross completely naked and dead. The shame of the cross for Jesus Christ was just that. And so people probably thought to themselves, why would you follow this? This is just seems like, like it doesn't make any sense. It's a complete mystery. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes about the mystery of Christ where he says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, It is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God, though, that through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So this foolishness that the world sees, God makes it wisdom for us. Paul is asking for prayer because he knows that the darkness of sin is so strong and that people will remain lost in their sinful lives unless God, the Holy Spirit, unlocks the mystery of Christ. Let me just remind you to pray for God to unlock the mystery of the gospel and that when we speak it, that we might be able to make it clear. Sometimes I think of it as a great responsibility like, wow, how much do I have to do? Well, let me just remind you of this. Do your part and let God do the rest. Your part is at least to be able to say, hey, let let me begin to understand this a little bit more and And keep growing in Christ Jesus. And and God will work in you as you're praying to Him and you're devoted to Him in prayer. And this is what Paul is asking for Um, ask for prayer when you know that you might have an opportunity. Definitely this is something worth praying for because this is a spiritual battle that we're dealing with when it comes to revealing the mystery of Christ. We have an exhortation to pray, a request for prayer, and now we have an exhortation for wisdom and grace. It says in the last couple of verses there, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, up to this point, everything Paul has been instructing them on has to do with Christians living amongst each other. And this is the first time that Paul really kind of refers to their relationships with people outside of Christ. Isn't it interesting that Paul refers to them as outsiders, as we talked about earlier? Um, Some people have have really said that maybe that these verses here are a call for evangelism. But the exhortation is not really about evangelism. If you take a look, and we're going to see this right now, it is about our behavior with those who are outside of Christ. And the first thing that he says is, "...to walk in wisdom..." towards outsiders. We need to connect this to what Paul stated in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, where he says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. You see, the goal is to walk with Christ. So that when you are with those who are outside of Christ, you aren't changed. He's he's not coming with the big club here to say, boom, you did it wrong, okay? The reminder is here is that if you are walking in Christ, okay, don't be changed when you're with outsiders, those who are not in Christ. Now, I think it's very encouraging just to kind of think about this for a moment because all of us are in different places in our growth in Christ. And some of you may be fairly new believers at this moment still. And others of us in here might say, hey, you know what, I've been walking with Christ for the last 20, 30, 40, 50, whatever years. And so this is just a great exhortation for the fact that We need to continue to think this way. And in fact, I would also tell you this, that Paul is not telling them that you have to be in a complete retreat from those who are outside of Christ. In fact, six times, uh, we're going to take a look at this. This, There's this word wisdom here. And six times in Colossians, the word wisdom is used. I don't know if you thought about that. Like, wow, it keeps coming up over and over again there must be a good reason for this. The word wisdom here, or Sophia, is the application of truth to experience. Truth. What is that truth? Well, that truth is that Jesus Christ is the Savior of this world, that He is God, that He is supreme. That is the truth. And the application of truth then to experience or to what you are doing It is the ability then to apply truth to life that comes only from God. It's important for us to be able to apply that. Wisdom is insight into the true nature of things. What are things really like? Now, if we listen to our world, we hear all sorts of craziness, don't we? And and so this is where your wisdom needs to be applied. So everybody's trying to pitch something. And if you're not careful, I mean, like, I guess there's a hurricane in Southern California, okay? And so, you know, I mean, 70 years, they said, since the last hurricane down there. And I was just kind of thinking to myself, like, okay, so let's just kind of think through all of this. You're talking with those who are outsiders, and their, their belief about what is happening is, you know, the world's coming to a tragic end really soon if we don't do something about this. So let's apply truth to this. What is the real end? What does it really look like? The real end is when Jesus says, this is the end, and he comes. It's not just that the earth is just going to all all of a sudden just kind of blow up. Wisdom is insight into the true nature of things. It is the faculty of judging and acting aright, full knowledge is not the end. You don't need to know everything. That's not what it's about. But definitely, there's, it's a means. The end of spiritual understanding of wisdom is to apply truth to experience. And I think, you know, sometimes you may not realize this, but there are people who listen to those who speak with wisdom, true Wisdom. And you will get an audience for that. But you have to be consistent with it in terms of applying real truth. False teachers, by the way, they only submit the appearance of wisdom, don't they? Paul stated it this way. If you look at chapter 2, verse 23, he says. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So here's the key. He says, you know, those who are teaching things that are false to you, okay, they're going to kind of be more concerned about looks and the way everything appears. They're going to be more concerned about this self-made religion that they're coming up with, that they have designed, and everybody needs to do these things. Okay, That's different than what we teach, right? Because we uphold the Word of God and we say, hey, this is where truth is. The other thing that they do is that really there's no value really, for what they're doing, which is really kind of like, for them, they just keep doing the same things. They indulge in the flesh. And one of the things that we are being told throughout the book of Colossians here is don't rely on the flesh. Rely on Christ Jesus. Grow in Him. Be rooted in Him and then continue to grow there. So, Walk in the wisdom of Christ when you are with those who are outside of Christ. The second thing is that time is short. And making the best use of our time refers to the fact that the day of Christ's return is soon. Our understanding of the time is really to shape our conduct toward outsiders. Think about that for a moment. Redeeming the time that we have with people I think that it's important for us to kind of think about this, that before we make an attempt to share the gospel with someone, that we need to pay close attention to our conduct. I think sometimes it's easy uh, for people to kind of of think to live in both worlds and both ways, and it's very confusing for those people that you're trying then, if that's the way you live, to try to be able to understand the gospel. Because over here... You're doing all these things that just don't line up with Jesus. But then on Sunday, you're saying, come join me at church. It's super confusing. One of our brothers here was telling me about that confusion and what that looked like. It was, it's got to be very confusing for people who are hearing us on one day say things that are outlandish and have nothing to do with Christ, but yet on another day, we want to, hey, you want to sit down and talk about Jesus today all of a sudden? like, whoa, what is, what is going on? No, I don't think I want that. that doesn't, there's something wrong here. The time is short. So, be careful about then, as he says, like, how do you make the most of your time with those who are outsiders? You want to make sure then that, hey, you know what? Everything that they hear and see from me leaves an opportunity for me to be able then to be able to share that mystery of the gospel with them, of Christ. We don't want the door to close on them today. So if you have the opportunity, share it with them. And once again, he's not saying, hey, it has to be done like this, and it has to be done every single time. But once again, it's just about, hey, be aware of this. Make the best use of your time here. The time is short. And then finally this, what he has to say is that he says, speak the grace of God in your speech. Paul said earlier in the chapter, he said, since the day you heard it, meaning the mystery of Christ, the gospel itself, and understood the grace of God in truth. What he is reminding them of is this. This is how you came to know Christ. Somebody came to you, Epaphras, most likely, and he began to share the gospel with them, and his language that he used with them was filled with the grace of God's truth. Now, if you know Paul and in the way he used to go into cities, Paul was always willing to have a dialogue with people, and he made friends actually pretty quickly, to be honest with you. The one thing that kind of you know, made enemies was, of course, the gospel, because the gospel says hey, you know what, you are deep in sin and you are the enemy of Christ. And so I can tell you this, though, that if you want an opportunity to speak with people about the gospel, then make sure that your speech is just seasoned that way in such a way that as you get to meet people, you're not burning those bridges right away. But there's something about you where God, where people are saying, you know what, there's something different in you. What is it? whoa, guess what? Opportunity just opened up for you to be able to share the gospel there, to talk about the grace of God in your life. I think that Paul is kind of linking together that our speech should be filled with grace, meaning that you leave an open door for the moment when the outsider might have the mystery of Christ unlocked. You don't know when an outsider might be ready to ask you to tell them more about the mystery of Christ, but it also means that we need to also be ready to articulate the gospel. Now, there's a lot in these few verses here, but one of the things that I'm greatly encouraged about just looking at these was that I think there's just a lot of grace in Paul's words here for us. In other words, he wants us to grow in Christ. He wants his listeners to just, hey, take this in, continue to grow. I go back to chapter 2 and uh, verses 6 and 7, where it says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and deceit, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The whole point is this. Be in Christ, right? I want to encourage you. I know that sometimes it's, it may be difficult for you to kind of be sustained in some things, but ask for prayer. Ask that God would allow you to continue to grow. I hope you're praying that for me. I hope you're praying that. uh, You do pray that, I know, for us as your elders and your pastors. But don't be afraid to ask one another to pray for you. I have a few concluding thoughts for you. Number one, determine to grow in your prayer life. Make that something that you want to do, that you want to grow. It's okay to ask people to pray for you in that area. It's okay for you to make that known to the Lord and just say, I really do want to grow in my prayer life. It's the marker that shows your maturity in Christ Jesus. Being devoted to him in prayer shows that you are growing. Secondly, learn to put to death what is earthly and put on Christ. Sometimes that's hard to do because if, our, if what we're putting in is earthly only, then it may be really hard for us to be able to put on Christ. And one of the things that Paul has been emphasizing throughout this book is to put on Christ. And that's why he doesn't spend a lot of time here like talking about all the bad things that you shouldn't do. He mentions a few of those things. But really what he kind of hones in on here is like, do these things. Put these things on. And watch how your life becomes transformed, how you become mature in Christ Jesus. Third, are you using your time wisely? Just consider that. Am I using my time wisely? What am I doing with my time? And once again, again, You and the Lord get to talk about these things. And what you might think is like, well, maybe I could use it a little bit differently. You might just find that God is saying, hey, you know what? Let's just talk a little bit more. How about you tell me a few more things? Maybe it has to do with the way in which you spend time with those who are outside of Christ. You know, is there any purpose in it? Think about it. And then finally, let your roots grow deep in Christ. There is a temptation sometimes, and, and really kind of maybe even a sense of persecution when you're younger to kind of think like, I, I don't want to be too spiritual in front of my friends. And so let me just say this to our to our young people this morning. Young people meaning 30 and under this morning. Grow some deep roots in Christ. There will be days where the wind is blowing really hard. And you're going to feel the temptations of life come upon you. And there are going to be those days where you're going to feel like, you know, do I want to actually pick up my Bible, read it, or pray, or be a, be a witness for Christ in any way. Grow those roots deep so that when those winds start to blow, that you're strong. If you feel like and this is for everyone, if you feel like, well, you know, I'm just not cut out for these things, to be able to share the gospel, the mystery of Christ to other people. Um, I, I just have a hard time speaking those things, or, or I have a hard time being able to pray in front of people. Begin to grow some deep roots. Become devoted to God and just say, to the Lord, and just say, all right, I'm going to come to you and share these things with you and ask you to do something for me here because I, I'm, I want to grow in you, Christ, and see what he does. You will be amazed. One of the things that I think of with this book is that we get to see the beauty of Christ in this book. And seeing the beauty of Christ in this book means that also you're part of him. You're in him. And that means there's beauty in his own people, those who are inside, especially if we are in Christ, not trying to live outside, but trying to live inside. Bow your heads with me and let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Thank you for the instructions that are given to us in this book of Colossians and the great care that is given to each of us through Paul's writing of this letter. While there's a a directness and a plea for us to put Christ first and to put off our sinful earthly selves and to put on Christ and to have these holy garments of righteousness that are displayed. You do all of this with such amazing beauty and grace for us. I'm Reminded of your words that you ask us to come to you because you are a God of compassion. You are a God who loves his creation and that you sustain all of it And so we ask that you would sustain us in these very things that we've been looking at. That you would grow us up to be your people who would be lights that shine in a world of darkness for the sake and the glory of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.